old pilot's plane tail. Four instructors walked into a bar. A half-Australian instructor says, Back home there's a bar where the barman buys you your fifth beer once you've drunk four. Well, says the first English instructor, Back in Rutland, my local has a buy two and get one free policy. The second English pilot says, In my local in Bali, they give you double gin and tonics for the price of one after each fourth. Ah, says the Irish instructor. In Belfast, there's a bar where you get free drinks as soon as you walk in and they keep them coming all evening. Then they take you upstairs and you get non-stop sex all night. What? You've actually experienced this yourself? Ask the other three. Well, no, says the Irish pilot, but my sister has. And so begins the first of a few plain tales. A conversation between four old instructors who got back together for a reunion a little while ago. Little war story. When they went to Leckenfield, they did a, uh, they were going to do a big fly past because they were handing the airfield back to the army, so it was going worth the airfield. So they had press and people and flag waving and banners and marching and things, you know, and all the sort of stuff going Cheers, on. Mate. And they were going to do a, um, a fly past. So of course. Cheers. On the, on the day, the weather's really bad, and they'd, they'd, they were planned, I don't know, a Diamond 9 or something stupid. <laughs> so they end up doing a four-ship. So they get airborne in like 300 feet cloud base, and they join up on top, and they form up in a sort of a box four. And they do a box four instrument approach. And then they you know, overfly over the airplane, the airfield in box four. Then they reform an echelon, go downwind a bit, to do a high-speed fly past Leckenfield, and then a vertical climb into the cloud. So the number two in the formation is uh, deputy flight commander and the leader is the boss and the boss wasn't the sharpest knife <laughs> in the drawer. Number two is flying along and he feels the controls in the slight and get quite stiff and heavy, you know, and he has a look in and they're doing 0.98. <laughs> and he goes, oh, so he presses the transmit button and um, he says, speed boss. And there's this, from the lead aircraft is Roger, and the reheat's like. <laughs> okay, let me tell a story about a student that I didn't realise at the time was exceptional. Um, I I was still a junior B2Q flyer like we all were just then when we met mm -hmm. up actually, and uh, the first course had gone through. And I was now the pilot nav instructor for the squadron because the rest of them were bloody air defenders who couldn't find their way around Wales. <laughs> so being the only Jaguar pilot, I was told to go and do some of the refresher students. Uh, but they'd been off for nine months. And these guys, I don't know, they only got about 10 hours or something. Can you remember? And they did a quick refresher course. So you got a quick instrument rating. You got a quick formation flight. You got a quick low-level nav flight and whatever else was on the course. Um, aerobatics probably. So I got this dude who'd come over from three squadron and uh, I was told to take him off to the low flying area and this guy hadn't flown much for nine months, hadn't been to low level properly, probably popped into the area. So we took off from Valley and we head off over Wales Boyle 
And uh, I think you had to fly over Carnarvon Airport and you're at 2,000 feet before you could let down. Mm-hmm. Um, so we go over Carnarvon Airport. Oh, and avoid the uh, seagulls, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I said, okay, mate, you can drop down 250 feet now. And we're doing 420 knots. And this guy lets down to his idea of 250 feet. And I'm going, whoa, this is quite cool. Well, you know, I'll just give him a few minutes to settle in. And... Uh, He'll ease up and he'll get lost because it's only map and stopwatch, no fancy Nevoise or kit to show you where to go. He'll get lost. So I left him for five minutes and he's still on track on time. I thought, well, he's actually doing better at 150 feet than I could. <laughs> <laughs> How high were you? About 150 feet. <laughs> so, uh, no, sorry. If, anyway, we're minimum height was 250, right? So probably about 251 feet. <laughs> and uh, if you remember, there were some pylons that ran north, south, and then we used to demonstrate the height so I said I have control blocks I won't give his name because he's probably no chief marshal now or something and uh, we were going along these pylons that we used to teach were 160 feet high mm. and I said you see at the top of those pylons blocks he said yes sir because they called you sir in those days not mate um, yes sir I said they're 160 feet high do you remember that from your early course oh yes so what height are we well, we're below 160 feet, sir. <laughs> <laughs> so he eased up to 250 feet and he went round the whole Navex on track, on time. And I went, whoa, that's pretty good. I then got him for a formation flight. And if you remember, you took off from Valley and you turned right off 04, picked up the 100, mm. radial, climbed out on the, what was it, 100 to avoid the airway and then turned right into the local flying area. And we were number three, I think. Yeah, we were. We were number three. And uh, so we'd taken a bit of, in the snake climb, 30-second departure. Is that mm-hmm. what it was? You'd take off 30 seconds behind each other. And so um, the leader's now going along, and I think they used to go at about 250 knots or something like that. Um, and we weren't catching up, but we were doing 350. We were cooking down the back to catch up as number three. And that's just at the point where the leader had to turn right, otherwise he'd go into the next airway. So he said, going right, reducing to 200 at that point, I turned my microphone off because we've now got number two who's just about to join. We're doing 350. We've got 350 knots overtake on the leader who's just done a nine of us. And I'll, oh, this is going to be fun. And I kid you not, my boy, he went into a high-speed yo-yo and he dropped down into the waiting position before the number two got there. Good and look. then he just moved in. And I went, whoa. And that's, you know, looking back on it years later... That boy, he went off to Harriers, and I don't know what he did then, but he was a bloody good operator. And being an inexperienced QFR, I just didn't know. So that's the student story. There you go. I'll tell you a student story. Go on there. Um, again, I was a very new instructor, very inexperienced, and uh, I didn't really know when to intervene when things weren't going so well. Well, usually before you die. <laughs> I, I did that. I did that. But I've got a, uh, a student uh, who's just done a little bit of low-level navigation, and I was doing the introduction to IP to target runs. So you pick a distinct feature, which you can't miss for anything else. And then you use that to lead yourself into a you know, small feature like a bridge or a, a building, something of that order. And you're using a 50 scale ordnance server map with a big line drawn it. It's normally about a minute and a half long, something like that. Mm-hmm. So 
First of all, I demo a IP to target run, one that I'd done about eight times, so I knew exactly what it was. <laughs> because being an air defender, I wasn't very good at this sort of stuff. So I get the IP to target run. I say, there's the target, or there's the IP, so we're going to go across it at wings level, uh, on speed, start the stopwatch, make sure there's any drift taken care of, da, 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 da. and every like 20 seconds is a, a feature, and I'm just crawling my way up the map, and there's the target. Right, now, you have a go. So I'll take him back to the IP, and he flies quite a nice IP to target run, overflies the target, excellent. Now he's got to go to another IP that he's chosen himself, navigate his way there and fly a, an IP to target run he's not seen before. And we're no in, idea. And, nor that. <laughs> <laughs> and we're, in, we're in Scotland. But I had seen his IP to target run because we discussed it in the briefing. And he's uh, the, in fact, I'd, I think I'd given him the target and he had to choose the IP. But... This IP to target run goes over Loch Ness. Now, if you've ever seen Loch Ness, it's it's quite big, isn't it? Mm. It's quite a big Loch, Loch Ness. So we, the IP is to the south of Loch Ness, the target's to the north of Loch Ness, and Loch Ness bisects. There's a narrow bit of Loch Ness, but, uh, <laughs> but it was still Loch Ness. So the student then uh, sets off to find his IP, and his heading should have been uh, 010. But the student's head's 110. So he's like over 90 degrees away from the heading you're shooting on. And at, at this point, if I'd been a more experienced instructor, I'd have said, What's the heading to the IP? But I thought, Well, we'll just see what happens. I thought, Not very good at that. So the student says, Well, it's, it's 2 minutes 30 on this heading, and we should see this, this uh, you know, hill with a wood on the side, and there's a road down that way, and there's an aerial, you know, 2 minutes 30. Would you believe it? There's a hill with a, with a, with a you know, woods on it and there's a road down there. And, and, and there's sort of like sort of an aerial, not that far away, you know. So the student says, well, that's the IP, absolutely certain. And he uh, overflies the IP on speed, on heading, all very nice. And he starts working along as well along the IP to target run, which is quite a long, it's about two minutes. And after about one minute, you go over a little Brava Hill and there is Loch Ness in all its splendour beneath you. So he goes up, 15 seconds, a uh, little road on the right, yeah, it's a little road on the right, 30 seconds, a stream coming through, yeah, there's a stream, uh, 45 seconds, farmhouse, yeah, there's a farmhouse, and they go, one minute, over the bridge, there's fields. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I'm in the back of the hawk, and I'm seeing this little bone dome in the front, swivel from left to right, up to <laughs> left to right, up to right, and, it, and he pops up from 250 feet to about 400, and you can tell what he's, what he's doing, he's thinking, where's it, where's it, where's it, where's it, and then he says this, he says, well, it's been a very dry summer. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah. he, he went on to be uh, uh, to the Empire Test Pilot School. Yeah, that's <laughs> about right. And, uh, good place for that shot. He was actually very good, but uh, yeah, there we are. Rather than me being the, the, the student, I was a student uh, at Linton News on, on, on the JP, and um, one of the first sorties to do is effects of controls. And I've got a brand new instructor, all the cough cameras and all the rest of it and so forth. And we go up, and you do, it's about 5,000 feet. And he's demonstrating the effects of controls, and, and then he, he shows, of course, if you if you misuse the controls too much, and he pulls the stick back and feeds a load of rudder in, and uh, and then I'm sat there as a student watching this, and, and suddenly we seem to be pointing vertically down, 
with the, the, the ground spinning around now. And, I, and I'm sitting there. Thinking, what, what height? 5,000 feet started. Oh, yeah. Uh, you, you put your in a spin at Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so, oh, and, and, he, and my instructor went all quiet. <laughs> 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 I'm sitting there going, well, he, he, he knows what he's doing. <laughs> but I'm sure this, this doesn't seem quite right to me. And he's, he's totally silent, fighting the controls. <laughs> and eventually comes out of this spin and goes... Well, there, you can see what happens if you mishandle <laughs> the controls. And I'm going, oh, yes, sir, yes, sir. Yeah, okay, I'm going to see that. I'll and, take that on board. And, and it wasn't until years later when I met him, because I said nothing. He said, uh, do you remember that effect of controls? Sort of? I said, yeah. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, I was um, selected to be the Lightning Air Display pilot for the final season uh, that they were doing displays for the Lightning. And... Um, the idea was you, you'd go to the squad and boss of the session commander with your, your sequence of events, you know, what were you going to do, you know, and they'd prove it. And then you go and practice it. You start off practicing at the safe height. And then as you get better at it, more proficient, more confident, you work the base height down towards, you know, safe height. Let's say 500 feet probably was the base height for your actual display on the day. So I'd done a couple of displays at 5,000 feet and I'd had a lot of problems with getting aircraft to do the displays in because we displayed in the Mark III and my squadron only had the Mark VI. Plus my squadron's aircraft were equipped with red top missiles and the Mark III's had fire streak. And the fire streak missiles have got wings on the missiles which alter the aerodynamic feel of the airplane. The Lightning Training Flight had all the Mark III, so we had to borrow them off the Lightning Training Flight, and I couldn't get them. So I'd only done, I think, three practices in about three weeks. Were they much different to fly? Yeah, yeah, because the Mark III was a lot lighter, and, and the, the fact that it had the winged missiles on it meant that it was much more responsive in pitch, all of which I knew. But I hadn't had much experience in recent times flying the Mark III. Anyway, I go off to do this air display practice and I notice that my uh, ventral fuel tank, the, the tank in the belly, which holds about 2,000 pounds of fuel, it was not feeding as quickly as I'd like it to feed into the wing tanks, which meant that the wing tanks were losing fuel and I still had fuel in the belly tank. And the belly tank was after the centre of gravity, but it's all within limits. It's within limits of the airplane. So I end up uh, going, and, and the aircraft was burning lots of fuel because I was in reheat for most of this blood course. So I go into a slow roll, and as I enter the slow roll, the nose drops slightly when I'm inverted. I lose maybe you know, 50, 100 feet, or something like that. So I check forward in the control column to stop the nose dropping and trying to regain this lost altitude. Upside down. Upside down, as I'm rolling. And it's almost as though the control column is taken out of my hand, it sort of goes fully forward, and the aircraft pitches upwards uh, from an inverted position quite violently. So I've got significant negative G, and I could feel my helmet uh, rubbing against the canopy. Okay, And then the aircraft went into an inverted spin. And... Uh, but, well, 4,900 feet, because I lost 100 feet in the uh, initial manoeuvre. And uh, I was below the minimum height to eject uh, for a lightning in the spin. should be 10,000 feet. For a normal spin, I was inverted, so I, that gave me a bit of a negative head start. And I was at 5,000 feet. 
And I can remember thinking, oh, dear, that wasn't very good. <laughs> and um, Was there any recovery from... No. Inverted spin? Well, they just said centralized controls. But, uh, but, <laughs> but in fact, I was, I was, you know, the actual fuel distribution on the airplane was meant I was outside the normal flight envelope, so I'm not sure that would have worked. But, but anyway, so uh, I was looking at the ground coming up to meet me, and um, I was pretty well convinced I was not going to survive it. The, um, the canopy came off the airplane. And I remember, uh, and it's strange how your thought processes work in, in these sort of situations. I remember thinking, God, this airplane's a real heap of shit. Can you say shit? <laughs> not only is it spinning inverted and the fuel's not fitting properly, the canopy's just come off by itself. <laughs> and and the, 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 uh, you know, the cockpit's full of air and noise and wind and stuff going on. And... Um, and I looked down into, into, my, into sort of my, my harness and I realized that my right hand was holding the seat pan handle. And I could see my right hand about probably six, eight inches in the air. I could see the shiny, <laughs> the shiny cable. I could see the shiny cable. I could see the fastening on it. Uh, and then I thought... I know what's happened. I'm, I'm, a, I'm an I've ejected. I've decided, to <laughs> but I made no, I made no uh, yeah. conscious decision. No. And then the next thing was was the seat, the seat fired, and I remember, you know, being being in the seat tumbling and being very disoriented with stuff that was going on, and hearing things like clockwork motors going tick 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 tick, and and the thing bangs and rubber bungees even going boing. Like <laughs> I remember hearing all this yeah. stuff, yeah. and. Um, then the parachute opened and I was probably at five or six hundred feet and I remember um, having been sort of out of it for a little while and then it's as though there was sort of like a woof and I'm back in my body again and I'm back on, in control of the situation so I'm going okay check out make sure the canopy is probably deployed inflate the life jacket go through the drill we were taught and then start preparing for the parachute landing. But unfortunately, the parachute landing happened before I was prepared for it. <laughs> I got there first. I got there first. And as regards remembering stuff that happened during the ejection, the interesting thing is that by the time I got to the medical centre, all those memories had gone. I couldn't remember it. But I could remember being able to remember it, mm. if you understand well, what I mean. Yeah. And my, 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 my mind probably went, you know what? You don't need to remember this stuff. It's it's, oh, it's cool. not it's not important to remember it. In fact, it's best if you take all these memories <laughs> and put them in a box and lock them up. Yeah. And don't tell the board of inquiry. And, and never <laughs> never open again. So what happened to the lightning? Presumably, it made a oh, nice it, big it hole. It made a nice big hole. Uh, it, it crashed directly beneath me, uh, and I remember seeing this great big orange and black fireball billowing up towards me. But uh, in fact, it was probably it was clear about 100 feet or so. And I then drifted a little bit further um, downwind and landed in the farmer's field. Sorry, the aircraft landed in the farmer's field. I landed on the airfield near the windsock. And I remember uh, lying flat on my back with very sore legs, but looking up at the sky, remembering just how blue the sky was and mm. thinking, that sky is amazing blue. I've never seen a more beautiful <laughs> sky than that. And then there's a great big fireman. Up and he says, "Oh, you're right, sir. You're right, sir. You know, and then it's all ambulances and you know, things, things like that." My enormous thanks to uh, Barry, DL, and Nigel for their recollections of flying and instructing. Uh, there'll be more again one day soon. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guys show. If you want to find out more about it, 
then pop over to airlinepilotguy.com. Plane Tales is also a standalone podcast, and if you enjoy the show, then why not leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice? It would be much appreciated. Cheers. <laughs>